So as you know, I, I don't know whether you uh, know this, that I think it's between about greater than 2% of all of the energy that's used globally is used to uh, make fixed nitrogen. <laughs> that means to make nitrogen from the atmosphere or from fossil fuels. So it's a hugely energy intensive process that makes fertilizers. What happens with most trees, nuts and wines is they have a, what you call a juvenile phase. Uh, so a juvenile phase is when they are growing vegetatively. That means they're producing you know, just vegetative material, roots and uh, leaves and branches and so on. It's a really good process where they have to train the plant to have two codons that are then sit on a scaffold and then they have these shoots that come out and then they train the shoots so that they will get into production faster. One disease, crown gall, that I've been focused on for the last many years, trying to find resistance to crown gall disease. This is a tumorous growth that many fruit trees and wines are very sensitive to, and I've, we have come up with a solution. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up and check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Abhay Dandekar. He's a distinguished professor at UC Davis. He's a director as well, part of the Plant Transformation Facility. We're going to talk about uh, fruit and nut trees and um, the traits in them that uh, – I guess, help them succeed or not, you know, phenotypic traits. So, Abhay, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Tell me a bit about your background. How did you get into studying fruit trees? Oh, I started my uh, career as a microbiologist studying microbes and mainly those that fix atmospheric nitrogen in plants. As you know, nitrogen is a key element that Required for all living living forms, uh, whether they are plants or microbes or humans. And I started my life working with this bacteria that fixes atmospheric nitrogen. And it really drew me into the whole world of molecular genetics and how 
genes move and are expressed and provide really useful traits. You know, the ability to acquire nitrogen from the atmosphere is, is a hugely important trait. But that's what oh, I started uh, my research on. And uh, I work now with trees and uh, trees, nuts, and wine. Okay. Well, before we get into the trees, the nuts, and the wine, can we talk a little bit about nitrogen fixation? Would that be okay? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Bacteria that would associate with certain plants fix nitrogen out of the air, or how does the whole cycle? Yeah, so as you know, I, I don't know whether you uh, know this, that I think it's between about greater than 2% of all of the energy that's used globally is used to uh, make fixed nitrogen. <laughs> that means to make nitrogen from the atmosphere or from fossil fuels. So it's a hugely energy intensive process that makes fertilizers. And as you know, with the Ukrainian war, you know, Ukraine is one of the big suppliers of fertilizers worldwide. So, so you need fertilizers to grow plants or grow crops because it's not that sufficient amount of fossil nitrogen in the soil to allow productive growth uh, of agriculture. And so you require nitrogen. The reason why they burn down forests because you know, they're taking advantage of the fixed nitrogen that's there, you know, in these old forests that can they can use to grow crops. So, so nitrogen is really well, a key element that is required, you know, globally for agriculture. Well, how does the cycle work? Can you give it some detail? Yeah. So normally, the way nitrogen is fixed in the environment is through bacteria in the soil that are able to convert atmospheric nitrogen into fixed forms of nitrogen. You know, basically, they can convert nitrogen into ammonia. And these bacteria are harbored by roots of, of certain types of plants and mainly legume plants, where they create nodule-like structures. They look like a little tumor, uh, but they uh, grow on these roots, and they become the site at which atmospheric nitrogen is converted into ammonia, which is then a very easily assimilated form of nitrogen that can enter into all the biochemical processes, make all the 20 amino acids and the uh, nucleic acids and allow cells to function. Is there any creature that fixes nitrogen out of the soil or it's it's only out of the air? Uh, there is fixed forms of nitrogen like nitrate and nitrite. So nitrate is a really stable form of nitrogen that you find in the soil, that would be the fossil nitrogen that's present in soil. And so that's uh, certainly what's uh, used by plants and microbes. And there can, microbes can also convert or mineralize, uh, you know, atmospheric nitrogen into different sorts of microbes in the soil can convert that into nitrate, which is then a fully oxidized form of nitrogen that sits in the soil. But what's the preference and what's the mix? So, Ammonia is predominant, or is it various nitrates? Is it a, a whole cocktail? Ammonia is a form that's used in uh, in all living organisms for the biochemical reaction. So that's the most reduced form of nitrogen that's re re uh, used, you know, in all the biochemical reactions. Right, but the microbes that fix nitrogen will they fix it to various different forms and use each of the forms? You know, some nitrates, some nitrites, some ammonia. So there are some forms that will make ammonia and there are different types of microbes which will make different uh, forms of nitrogen in the soil. 
So they're nitrifying bacteria and they're denitrifying bacteria and they are present in the soil and they interconvert nitrogen into various forms. But as far as plants are concerned, they are, they really need nitrate, you know, as a fixed form of nitrogen that they can take up. And so that's why fertilizers tend to be, you know, ammonium nitrate and that sort of fertilizer, which is used for plants to uh, take up nitrogen. Gotcha. So in a field with crops, is it possible to plant nitrogen fixing cover crops, let's say, so you don't need fertilizer? Yeah, so that's a really good idea. And that's why you have these rotation, crop rotations where people will be growing cereal crops and then have other crops that are legumes, you know, which are cover crops, then they, 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 or, or just uh, alternate, you know, between a cereal crop that needs nitrogen, fixed nitrogen and legumes, which can contribute, can fix atmospheric nitrogen because of the association with these symbiotic bacteria. And, and then they are able to create, uh, they have excess nitrogen that gets enriched in the soil. And so you have this nice cycle going. You can also have cover crops that are interspersed in, you know, in tree crops and things like that, which can contribute to nitrogen in the soil. Apart from using manure and those type of things, they also have fixed forms of nitrogen in the soil. So there are various ways to have nitrogen enriched in the soil through breakdown of plant material or uh, or urban refuge that can, can contribute to nitrogen. So there's a lot of nitrogen that uh, gets into the environment from us, you know, it's just excreting it out for, from our bodies as well as from our food sources into the environment. So there's a lot of nitrogen that's lost that seeps into the environment. Certainly, if you have the fixed forms like nitrate, they are more stable and they don't get into groundwater, whereas more assimilable forms of nitrogen like ammonia can get into groundwater. And then you have all sorts of eutrophication problems, you know, as nitrogen seeps into soil, because it's very highly toxic. And you know, mm-hmm. ammonia is very toxic. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So has anyone identified what are some of the, and it probably depends on what you're growing, but any idea of some of the ballpark ratios of the various, you know, oxidized or reduced forms of nitrogen? That yes, are, that are necessary. it's certainly an area that most people who grow, farmers who grow are, are evaluating, you know, how much nitrogen is there in the soil and then they will put. But there's really no good way to know what the demand is for nitrogen uh, in and, and to give just that much nitrogen to plants so that they will just take up what they require and you don't have any excess in the soil. But unfortunately, since there's really no good sensor or mechanism to do that, most farmers are over, <laughs> over fertilizing their plants, you know, 
So that is the problem. It's not something I do research on. You know, we are talking about a topic that I don't do research on, but I'm very familiar with since, you know, tree nuts and wines require nitrogen, but they are more complex because they are long-lived, you know, plants. They go through a cycle. So they are able to actually store nitrogen and recycle nitrogen. So they they have a much more complicated way in which to utilize nitrogen. And therefore, it becomes more even more complicated understanding, you know, the demand of how to prescribe the right amount of nitrogen for an orchard or a vineyard. Well, not only the right amount, but the right forms, right? And the right forms, right, yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, and, and when you grow plants and tissue culture, you know, you need to grow, you need to provide them more organic forms of nitrogen, which are really very nice for them because they are able to use those organic forms of nitrogen in a much better way without having to have, you know, things that form ammonia, which are more detrimental and more toxic to plants growing in culture. Because, you know, we, we not only, I not only study plants, you know, in orchards and vineyards, but we also study them growing in, in tissue culture. And as you know, tissue culture is, is becoming, it's going to become more and more important as we try to have plant material that we can eat. <laughs> so then, yeah, this is where the nitrogen is going to become a really important uh, factor. Gotcha. Yeah, one question I have, I thought, you know, we can switch to uh, fruit trees and nuts and all that and wine. It's very interesting. Um, what? Why does it take multiple years for a lot of fruit and nut trees to produce? Like, how does the plant know, oh, it, you know, this season, not yet. Next season, yep, we're ready to go. Let's produce. <laughs> so this, it's a really, it, it's, it's a really interesting question. And what, what happens with most trees, nuts and wines is they have a, what you call a juvenile phase. Uh, so a juvenile phase is when they are growing vegetatively. That means they're producing it is just vegetative material, roots and uh, leaves and branches and so on, right? Uh, but they are not producing any fruit, any reproductive organism. And then they make a switch at some point where they become mature. And this time from juvenility to maturity is very variable with various different crops, uh, tree crops. So when they become mature is when their vegetative buds will now develop, you know, reproductive structures, you know, flowers and pollen and ovaries that then, you know, become the fruit that we eat, you know, or the berries that we eat. So uh, so that this transition from a vegetative bud to reproductive structure is very variable. And so, for example, in grape wines, you know, it may take two to five years, you know, depending on whether they will start fruiting. And for walnuts, that's the case too. It can take anywhere from three to five years before they start making fruit. Citruses are very variable. Some, it may take as much as 15 years before they start producing fruit. And so it's very variable uh, among different tree crops and different varieties and different tree crops. Sometimes you can actually improve that uh, or shorten the juvenile phase by using a rootstock. Uh, I don't know whether you're familiar that most tree uh, trees, nuts, and wines are composite genetic systems where they have a root system that's different to the scion. So you have a rootstock that's grafted to a scion. The scion is the top part of the plant, which creates the fruit that we eat, right? 
but the rootstock is there to improve nitrogen <laughs> assimilation. Is the rootstock from the same plant or from a different kind of plant? It's grafted out. So it's uh, usually a different species of uh, plants in the same, you know, a genera as the plant, for example, in the case of walnuts, for example, top part of the plant is Juglans regia, which is the English walnut or Persian walnut. This is what we eat. But the rootstock uh, is uh, a variety of different Juglans species. You know, it could be like, for example, in California, it could be Juglans heinzii, which is the California black walnut. It could be microcarpa, which is Juglans microcarpa, which is a Texas black walnut. Uh, it could be Juglans nigra, you know, which is a eastern black walnut. Uh, so these, so it could, could be a hybrid. And in most production systems these days, use hybrids where you have a hybrid between English. That means it's a cross between English and a black walnut. So you have a hybrid. That hybrid is known in the case of walnuts. It's called paradox walnut. And it really stimulates a growth of the plant because it's a hybrid. It has hybrid vigor and it makes the plant bigger and more productive. This is the case for uh, all the root the rootstocks that are used to graft on uh, peaches and nectarines and plums, prunes, apricots and almonds also have a hybrid rootstock. In the case of grape wine, they also have hybrid rootstocks, which are native species uh, of vitus that are not related to vitus vinifera. Vitus vinifera are the grape wines that make all the different varieties of wines. They are all vitus vinifera species. But you have, those all came from Europe, but in the United States, you have native species that were resistant to phylloxera, for example. As you know, phylloxera was a root insect that fed on on roots that destroyed the entire wine industry in Europe, you know, in the, the late 19th century, somewhere around between 1880 and that part, you know, essentially destroyed the entire wine industry uh, in Europe. And they had to move to using these rootstocks, American rootstocks, uh, that were a hybrid species of different uh, vitus vinifera species that grow, you know, in the eastern United, eastern and southern, southeastern United States. How do you physically graft a root onto another plant? At what stage so, do you do this? How do they do it? Yeah, yeah this is a great, uh, great question. So this is all done in nurseries. So that's why, you know, in California, you have the nursery industry is like, I think it's worth uh, Farmgate value around $3 billion. And what they do is they provide plant material for growers to grow. Uh, all rootstocks are vegetatively propagated as are the cyan. And then when they are at a seed, you know, in a seedling stage, in a, in a pot, they will graft them. They can graft them two ways. They can do what is called a bench graft, where they take the top and they make a cut and they splice them together and then hold them together with a rubber band. And what happens is that a vascular connection is made. You have a little callus that's formed, unorganized growth between the two pieces that are brought together. And then you have vascular connections that then establish, you know, the xylem and phloem connections. And then you get a plant that you virtually can't see where the graft was done. You can also have what is known as bud grafting. So you have a plant and then you take a bud 
from the cyan variety and then you bud it into the stem. You make a little cut, a tea cut, and then you slip the bud in there and then you let it heal. And what happens, the bud takes, then you cut the top of the other plant, the rootstock, and now this becomes the plant. And this is all done. It's a, it, there's a lot of art to it. Not everybody can do this effectively. A lot of home gardeners will do this. You know, that's how you have a plant with, you, you can have a citrus rootstock with different citrus varieties, you know, on the plant. You'll see that in many nurseries will provide you uh, plants. You can have a prunus, which is, uh, has apricots on one branch and cherries on another branch and plums on another branch or peaches on another branch. So, you can, if you know how to do this, you can have a lot of fun grafting. You know, there's a lot of pruning that's done and training. There's a lot of manicuring that is done on these plants. And, you know, it's the whole field of horticulture, which uh, will, allows you to do this. Every case, you must understand that these are all clones. So that's why Vitus vinifera may have a clone, a Zinfendel, for example, that you make Zinfendel wine out of. So all those plants are propagated from from one plant. A good example is the Fuji apple, right? So the Fuji apple, all Fuji apples come from this one tree in Morioka, Japan, where they where they took branches or or or, or stems which with buds on them, and then they grafted those buds to different rootstocks. And so you have you're propagating this one plant that sits in Morioka, Japan all over the world. <laughs> Everything is a clone. So you know they are clones because they'll have a name to it. So you have Fuji apple, golden delicious apple, this is a clone. A russet Burbank potato is a clone. A Santa Rosa plum is a clone. A Go Bing cherry <laughs> is a clone. All these But if you have clones. too many um if you have too many clones, I get I would guess that uh, once certain pests, you know, find them, that it could be uh, incredibly detrimental if they attack. That's right. Yes. So, so, it's, so you could, yeah, you could lose the clone, especially if it's very sensitive to a disease, which is something that we are trying to fix so that we can use, you know, we can over, uh, overcome the deficiencies in, in some of these and maintain quality, you know, and productivity in a, in a good way. But you're, you're right. So some clones are quite resilient, uh, you know, and, uh, but they are really valued for the quality that they give the consumer. And so in the case of wine grapes, you know, you, you have Chardonnay, right, which is, uh, is an important clone. And you can't make any changes to that because Chardonnay is, it gives you that particular quality of wine, you know, or golden delicious apple. Some people like them and prefer them, yet others may like Granny Smith, you know, and so yeah, you in, have... in, a, in a field, you could possibly help yourself by doing, I don't know if this is possible, but could you plant Golden Delicious and Granny and like, let's say four different kinds in a given field instead of just a monoculture? Yeah. Would that help at all? Yes, you could do that. It's, it's really a question of then how do you harvest and uh, segregate the different apples, but you certainly can do that. And most, uh, you know, backyard farmers will grow that or small farmers would would do that have different varieties and it gives them a production that spans, you know, the entire season. This is true for peaches because you have early peaches and middle peaches and late peaches, something that come earlier in the season 
so that you can get a better price for them and <laughs> they may not taste as good <laughs> as the ones so, that come uh, later uh, in the season but yeah what's the expertise in grafting on various root systems like what do you need in a root system to help these trees grow can you plant i mean like what are the characteristics of these root systems and how is that discovered so the root systems are uh, are are really environmental specific so it depends on the type of soil growers have. They will choose a certain rootstock that will help them in that location. And so, for example, in grape wine in California, California, as you know, is uh, produces 80% of the the wine uh, in in the United States, and they grow in these various regions. And if you look at these various regions, there are about, uh, I would say, maybe 25 different rootstocks that are there, there are about five of them that are used most predominantly. And and I've seen different growers will choose the rootstock based on the type of soil they have, the type of diseases that are present in the area. They will choose a rootstock. And then, so they've got to then, you know, that's one choice. And then they've got to think what sort of top they want to have, you know, what sort of wine they want to produce, whether it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. That's why you see, in some areas, uh, you have really good Merlot growing, but, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't do as well. So you've got to think not only of the the root system, but you also have to think of the top part of the plant, how it would do in that environment and, you know, what sort of quality of wine it will make. Uh, by and large, grape wines are grown in most stressful environments uh, uh, because you get better quality of wine when, it's, uh, when the plant is stressed. Let's go back to the, um, you know, the life cycle, the vegetative versus the fruiting cycle of these trees. What factors determine and can you force these trees to, to bear fruit earlier or faster than you normally would? Like, has that been studied? Yeah. So, so there, there are lots of tricks. Uh, people try to uh, grow, take more mature tissue, you know, from uh, harvest from a plant uh, for the sign. They will take more mature branches. So they are further along in the developmental cycle. And then they will uh, bud graft those onto rootstocks. There are some rootstocks that help plants mature faster. So you have uh, that can happen. In, for example, in apple, you have the mauling series of rootstocks that can actually some are, that can make the plant more precocious. That means it will flower much faster. So there are various tricks. There are ways in which you can prune and train plants uh, that can help them mature faster. So uh, horticulturists will use all sorts of tricks in trying to make the plants. They will bend the branches, try to create the structure of the plant so that it can mature faster. You know, you, as you know, in grape wines, it's a very, it's a, it's a really good process where they have to train the plant to have two codons that are then sit on a scaffold and then they have these shoots that come out and then they train the shoots so that they will get into production faster. So a lot of the training and is and pruning systems are are well established for for different sorts of plants that uh, and rootstock and science that people know from a horticultural knowledge base you know how to train these. But the environment plays a huge role. So some environments you know it may just take a longer time for the plant to get established. You know. And so, so that becomes an issue. So what is your research about specifically? What are you trying to figure out? 
I work on trying to improve uh, the productivity and quality of uh, basically orchard and vineyard crops. And I study root systems a lot. Uh, we are trying to create roots that are more resilient to diseases. There's uh, one disease, crown gall, that I've been focused on for the last many years, trying to find resistance to crown gall disease. This is a tumorous growth that many fruit trees and wines are very sensitive to. And I've, we have come up with a solution where we can inhibit the formation of the of the tumor formation by this bacteria that is it's quite ubiquitous in agricultural soil. And, and so, so that's one of the things we've been working on. We try to take a different perspective. I try to study the disease rather than uh, the organism uh, and its virulence, which, or the, or the pathology of the organism. So I, I try to look at the plant perspective to the disease and, uh, and processes and, and, and try to understand how the pathogen is creating the disease and try to find ways in which I can stop the disease from taking place. And so it's a little bit different so, okay. perspective than a pathological perspective. Well, what's an example of that? Can you go through one to make it more, make it make it more sense? Yeah. So in the case of the crown gall, which is a disease, uh, it's a tumorous growth on the, on the base of these plants. And it occurs due to wounding, natural wounds. These were the association between these tumors and these bacteria was established maybe 150 years ago. So we've known that and we've studied the genetics of this organism now in great detail. So we know precisely how it is able to make these tumors because it's a natural genetic engineer. It sends a piece of DNA into the plant tissues, which are in the wounded cells that are healing, it is able to send uh, this piece of DNA into the nucleus and, and encoded in this piece of DNA is several functions. And there are about three genes which are, which we refer to as oncogenes. Oncogenes is borrowed from the cancer term where, uh, or there will be cancer forming genes. And the tumor is a form of cancer, but uh, these are growth enhancing genes that are expressed in the plant and and that's how you get the tumor so what we've done is we've used epigenetic approaches that means we control the expression we put a system in the plant that down regulates the expression of these genes if it's infected so in a way it sort of works like a vaccination you you are producing something that basically down regulates the expression and so you don't have the tumor formation so the the bacteria can still infect but it just can't make the tumor because you put a system in it that recognizes the tumor-forming genes or the expression of the tumor-forming genes and, and essentially degrades the messenger RNA that's produced, uh, that's required for that expression to create the, the tumor. Well, what kind of off-target effects does it have? It's uh, so surprisingly accurate. It's sort of, the system you know, it's an epigenetic system that's present in all plants. It's referred to as RNA interference. And it's a system that's present in all, almost all eukaryotes have this system in them. And it's, it's there to prevent, it's a, it's there to prevent them from getting infected 
by viruses. It's an antiviral system. And so essentially by giving them the trigger against these genes, it's an RNA-mediated process that is so accurate that it just takes out that messenger RNA <laughs> when you have a transformation by an incoming agrobacterium that's going to create the tumor. It essentially chops down just that RNA. It's extremely accurate. And the off-target effects? I mean, do these plants grow and flower and fruit normally? And Yes, they, they, they just grow normally and fruit normally. They're, they're indistinguishable. When we look at the siRNA that are formed, they're just very, for just for those, those gene targets that we've introduced. So it's a really very elegant system because it works at the RNA level and it uses the size of the RNA is about 21 nucleotides long. So the possibility of making a mistake is infinitesimally small because, you know, you can trace a gene by as much as 16 base pairs, right? So most, most PCR primers are in the 18 base pairs to 20 base pairs. So then you only will amplify that piece of DNA. So the accuracy is due to the base pair complementation that's taking place in the piece of RNA. And since that RNA is, you know, 20 nucleotides long, it's extremely, it's accurate. And the accuracy is due to that. You know, CRISPR systems also have a, a 20 base, you know, region which they will recognize. But then there's a lot of interplay there. With, with, so you have off-target effects. Uh, in that, well, there must be that. there must be some trade-off here. I mean, you're down-regulating certain genes. Those genes you're just, you're probably down, don't just have a single function. What else? Yeah, what else yeah, you, yeah you it's true. It's a, it's a it's a good question. So it comes to what it, what it means is that what is the homology between uh, these genes that create these tumors, and there are three of them, and we knock out two of those genes. What is the homology between those sequences? that you find in nature and plant genome sequences. So that's really the question. If there was a similarity, and that similarity has to be in excess of 80% similar, then you would have a target of target. But we don't see that. There's no conservation. There's no similar sequence in plants. And so you have to, to avoid an off-target effect. You need to make sure that the similarity is less than you know seventy percent, and then you less you will not have the off target effect. And if you want the system to work, you could have similarity in excess of eighty percent. And what is cool about this, as far as on the bacterial side, you've got to worry about uh, bacteria having resistance to this mechanism. It turns out mm. that almost all these genes are highly conserved among agrobacterium species that form make tumors, they're in excess of, they're more than 90% similarity between the same genes in all agrobacterium species. Why are these, so, uh, these tumors approximations of root nodules? Like what, what is the point of these yeah, so Yeah, they are very different to root nodules. They are more like a tumor. They're more, a, more of a cancer. They are unorganized growth. So you'll see these big tumors. So they're like a neoplasm, but they're... Yes. Okay, so they're... But, so um, they're basically a new plant. Do they, are they similar at all in morphology to, um, you know, root nodules that are created on other plants that do harbor bacteria, that do harbor useful structures? Yeah, they are different because they, the bacteria are not in the inside of these tumors. 
the bacteria sit on the outside of the tumors. So they are mm, on the surface. Okay. In the case of nodules, you know, the rhizobium are within that structure itself. And they need to be within that structure itself because you need to have you need to have less oxygen for nitrogen to be fixed. Here, what is thing is they are stealing nitrogen from the plant in the form of an opine. You know, these are nitrogenous compounds that are stolen from the plant and exuded out to the surface where these bacteria sit, and they are able to metabolize these opines. So. So the tumor is, is then, yeah, so the opines are these nitrogenous compounds that are also the genes for their synthesis is also present on that tDNA, which goes inside the plant. Apart from the oncogenes, you have these opine synthesizing genes that are also present. And so the tumor becomes a factory to channel nitrogen, <laughs> carbon and nitrogen from the plant to make this opine, which is a, essentially a conjugate between a carbon a, uh, organic acid and a amino acid, basically. It conjugates an amino acid with an organic acid. And so uh, the, the, the bacteria are able to metabolize them because they have these opine, uh, opine breakdown genes that can, uh, and, and they are unique. Uh, each agrobacterium, there may be about 40 different opine type structures among all agrobacterium species in the soil. And so, mm. so, so they may have the different uh, agrobacteria may make different opines, but they okay. seem to use the same tumor forming genes. <laughs> Those are highly conserved and, and they are mobilized horizontally. They are acquired horizontally among different populations. So as we have orchards uh, that uh, are, you know, infected, you know, there's no way you can avoid those genes being passed on to the other agrobacterium in, in, in the environment. So a tumor is not only a home for, for these bacteria to acquire nutrition, but they use it also to transmit those genes to different agrobacterium in the bacteria that can use those, those plasmids that contain this, this genetic material passed on horizontally. So the problem tends to get worse. And so, so we think our solution is quite unique because we are stopping the tumor formation. So we are eliminating the home. So the, so the bacteria don't have a, a home to, and a, and a hotel to provide them, uh, the, the food, food source. Okay. Interesting. So are you, what other diseases are you trying to fight in, uh, in these tree plants? And are you using the same methodology now that, now that it works? You can experience yes. other types of. Yeah, so so we certainly we are we we've been successful with the the uh, crown gall resistant plant in in walnut, and we are sort of going uh, trying to look at this new regulatory process that APHIS has to see if we can uh, have it released to farmers. We are now trying to make uh, rootstocks, so we can take existing rootstocks that have all sorts of useful features and introduce these trigger genes so that will make them resistant to crown gall. And we're trying to do this in grapevine, five different rootstocks that we are currently trying to install the, the genes in. And then a, a, a probably a, a rootstock for prunus. Prunus, as you know, you know, is a family of, of rosaceae family that is, that has almonds are part of that, you know, and we grow so many almonds in, in, 
in California, the rootstock is very sensitive to crown gall. So we would like to make that resistant. And so that's on the crown gall side. We are also working on uh, Pierce's disease, which is the disease of the top of the plant. So, so for the bottom part of the plant, for the rootstock, we think that RNAi approaches would be really useful. We could, in addition to crown gall, we could try to, we are investigating how to make them resistant to Phytophthora using an RNAi strategy and also to nematodes using an RNAi strategy. So that's the bottom part of the plant. For the top part of the plant, there are many diseases on the top of the plant. I mean, the cyan, the edible structure, where Pierce's disease is a good example. It's a insect transmitted disease. I don't know whether you are familiar with uh, Pierce's disease. It's a disease that showed up in California in the, again in the 19, early in, in the late 19th century. They had an epidemic. Most of the wine production was in uh, Santa Ana region, you know, in Los Angeles. That was a hubbub of uh, activity. And, and then it was essentially destroyed completely because of Pierce's disease. Pierce's disease is uh, endemic in the eastern, southeastern of the United States where this bacteria is transmitted by via insects. These insects uh, infect the plant and they are xylem feeding insects. They are leaf hoppers and the bacteria sits in their mouth part and is able to migrate into the plant as it's feeding. And they sit in the xylem of the plant, which is the water element in the plant. And they are xylem limited, very fastidious bacteria. And so we are trying to make proteins that will improve the immunity against these in the top of the plant. So we have we've engineered rootstock that make proteins that will interfere with the growth and reproduction of these bacteria in the in the top of the of the plant. And we have been able to do field trials where the root system makes these proteins, right? Secretes them into the xylem and then uh, they migrate past the graft union to the top part of the plant. And so uh, they can protect the top part of the plant from uh, coming down with the disease. So it's a trans graft protection. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, so it's a pretty, so this is what we are investigating, how to get resistance to Pearson. So I guess one thing that can be done is you can inoculate a graft or, you know, alter it up or down, regulate the required genes. And then once yes. that's done, then you graft it on, and now the new plant would have the properties you want. Exactly. And perhaps yes. even even biologically, you might not alter the plant that you're grafting onto. This was yes. just uh, yes. That's yes. really cool. Yeah. So the, so so this is the really cool thing. So because of these, because all these plants are vegetatively propagated, all you need is a good line that protects. You know, and so yep. we for for and then once you have that, like we have that for the crown gall resistant walnut rootstock. It's a paradox walnut rootstock. Really good. I mean, it performs beautifully in the field, protects against crown gall formation. Even though the crown gall bacteria are there, it can infect, but it doesn't make the tumor, <laughs> right? So it's, it's uh, pretty cool. And then you can graft any variety on top of it, right? Uh, you could draft, you know, all you know different varieties of walnut. Uh, yeah, that's and, interesting. And they are not, you know, Certainly the bottom part, because uh, the RNAi system is introduced via a transgene, so it is a transgenic rootstock, but the top part of the plant is not. And that would be the case with the grapevine too. The, the different rootstocks that we make that are resistant to Pearson disease 
the rootstock is uh, engineered, whereas the top of the plant, you could put any. You could put Chardonnay, you could put Zinfandel, you could put uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, you know. You don't yeah. have to make any changes, there, but you are protecting them against the disease through the roots. Yeah, that's really cool. So is, what's the name for this process? Or have you have you created a name for it? I guess engineered rootstocks or, I don't know, uh, yeah. disease-resistant rootstocks? <laughs> yeah, I would say they, these would be uh, disease-resistant rootstocks. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you okay. know, and we hope to uh, see if we can do, you know, make them more resilient to climate also, you know, the same way by modifying the rootstocks in such a way uh, that we could, you know, make them right. more resilient. And and I, I think this is where genomics is really helping us, you know, the whole field of genomics where we understand the genome, how it functions, and we can, you know, it's because of genomics that we can target specific genes and pathogens, or we can enrich, you know, we can help genes plant side, we can see why they become more sensitive, you know, we can knock down the genes, you know, uh, uh, for example, that's the case with the crown gall, right? They, they, we, we knock down the expression, you know, and then we will get, you know, more resilient plants. Mm, okay. Well, very good. Abhya, um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Oh, uh, I guess they can uh, look at my Google Scholar <laughs> profile or uh, if they can look at I don't have a very extensive footprint where uh, you can, uh, but, you know, if you you can see the publications that I have in this field, uh, if they just Google my name, I think you'll, you'll come across the website and things like that. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for including me in your uh, repertoire of people that you were getting caught podcasts from. You're welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.